In just a moment, we are going to be able to hear God's word from Rick Hutton. And uh, it's been a while since he was with us. He was telling us this morning that the last time he preached for Evergreen, we were at the school. <laughs> so that's been a while, uh, but it's, um, it's great to have Rick back with us. And for those of you who don't know, he is a uh, ruling elder at All Saints. And he is actually kind of the, uh, the one that is behind orchestrating all of our pulpit supply. So uh, give him a, a great thank you um, today for doing that for us. Uh, as you know, that has been a fantastic blessing uh, to our church to have um, those men step up and to um, provide pulpit supply for us. Our scripture today comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, if you'll stand together uh, for the reading of God's word. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for this time in our service where we can hear from you and from your word. Grant us the ability to hear with good ears. Grant us the heart so that we would receive your truth. Grant us the faith that we need to act upon it so that you might be glorified. Father, we pray for Rick as he proclaims your word, that he would do so with faithfulness, with boldness, and with power. Through the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Steve, for the thank yous. Uh, it's been great. Every week, the guys come back from preaching here and say, tell me about how thankful people were. They're coming up to them and saying thankful and how thankful they were for, you know, us coming out here. And Steve ran me down at the Presbytery meeting last week to, to thank me. And uh, we appreciate that. And we're glad to serve our, our sister church. But I, want to imagine, I want you to imagine a scenario uh, that, uh, you know, we come week by week filling your pulpit. And you're all very thankful and you're grateful and the, and the word's being preached and your Christ is being presented to you. But then you find out that secretly we've been calling members of your church and saying, hey, we know things have gone a little sideways. We know that you're without a pastor. Why don't you just come on down to All Saints? Why don't you just join us? Just drive on into town, you know, 35 minutes. It's not that big a deal. Just come join us. I dare say you'd be a little upset if that's what we were doing, right? Well, that's actually very similar to the situation that Paul's in right here. So last week, we were looking at verses uh, uh, 12 to 14, and we saw uh, that uh, contrary to what we would expect, Paul's imprisonment had actually led to a spread of the gospel. It was actually going faster because Paul was in prison, and it was going faster because of those two reasons that one, 
he had guards chained to him who had to listen to what he said. And they estimate there's like 9,000 of uh, the men in this troop, and they have to regularly rotate out and get chained to Paul, and he's, you know, preaching the gospel to them, and they're going around and telling all their fellow guys, you don't want either, you need to be chained to Paul, and here's what he's saying, or you don't want to be chained to Paul because he won't shut up about Jesus. Either way, it's going out through his work. And then also uh, last week we saw how the Christians in uh, Rome were being emboldened to preach the gospel because of Paul's uh, imprisonment. Uh, And so, uh, again, that seems contrary. We would think, oh, you know, uh, people will be afraid. Paul's in prison. We should just kind of stay under the radar, but they're actually being emboldened to preach the gospel. And so the gospel is going out uh, contrary to what one might expect. Paul has probably been in prison for two years at this point uh, when he writes this letter uh, to the Philippians. But all is not good on the streets of Rome. Paul says there are two distinct groups or parties among these bold preachers uh, preaching the gospel. One is preaching uh, the gospel out of rivalry and selfish ambition. The other is preaching the gospel out of goodwill. The first thing we need to notice here is that both are preaching the gospel. Uh, both, uh, by both groups, Jesus is being accurately displayed. They are preaching Christ and him crucified. Um, and so Paul in verse 18 can say, either way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed and I rejoice. So we know that they're accurately representing Christ. These rivals of Paul are accurately representing Christ because we know how Paul deals with false teachers. If you think about Galatians, and he's dealing with the Judaizers, and he uses things like, I read, you know, I wish that they were damned or that they would emasculate themselves. Paul doesn't mince words when he's talking uh, about false teachers. And the same thing in Corinth, he calls down judgments. Uh, on false teachers. And, but here he's rejoicing in these teachers, these preachers, because they're actually preaching the true gospel. They're explaining Christ. So Paul says, I was determined to know among you nothing but Christ and him crucified. And here are men in the streets of Rome knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. They're preaching the gospel with accuracy, and Paul is rejoicing. One implication of this is that we can know that the gospel is a set of propositional truths that can be proclaimed by those who are sincere and those who are not. The gospel is facts. It's facts about Jesus. And in uh, both cases, whether being preached by someone with sincere motives or insincere motives, the word will convert people. And Paul can be excited about that because the agent of conversion or the agent of change is not the preacher. It's the Holy Spirit working with the word that comes from the preacher. The church had to wrestle this out in the early centuries of the church after the death of the apostles. There came a time of great persecution, uh, and many preachers fell away. Many preachers, instead of uh, being willing to be martyred, uh, renounced Christ. And so a question came up in the church that said, well, if I was converted under the ministry of one of these preachers that rejected Christ, and if I was baptized by this preacher who has rejected Christ, am I really a Christian? Do I need to be baptized again? Do I need to find a a true pastor now and get, get baptized for real since this guy wasn't really a Christian when he baptized me? And the church 
the conclusion of the church as a whole was no. It's not about the guy. It's about the message that the guy brings. And so Paul could rejoice even with these men who had insincere motives. So let's look at those men first. They preached out of rivalry and selfish ambition. The idea here is uh, covetousness. They want something. They have a selfish ambition. They want something. What they want is uh, Paul's position. These men are jealous of Paul. They want the power and influence that he has over the people. Uh, over the people. This is the, this is the preacher in the small country church that's not content with the call that God has given him, but wants the big city church, wants this, the first church with the tall steeple, uh, where he'll have a name, where everyone will listen to his podcasts, and, uh, and uh, he will be considered someone. These men uh, were falling into the cultural milieu of the day. The, Gro- the, the Greco-Roman culture saw power and influence as a zero-sum game. In that culture, the way I get ahead is by you getting behind. There was no concept in the Greco-Roman culture that we could both grow in our influence and power. The only way I get ahead is if you get behind. And so they're stirring stuff up in the church. These are preachers of the gospel who uh, are not seeing their own sin, and they're getting caught up in uh, the, the, the cultural milieu of the day. And they're saying, well, you know, Paul, he's in jail, you know, and, and I'm here preaching Christ to you. And so you really want to be a part of, of my church and you want to follow me and you don't really want to worry about that Paul guy. Uh, much like if uh, All Saints was here trying to recruit members to come into town uh, and join us. This is what uh, is is going on. Um, They are preaching out of this selfish ambition. And not only that, they not only want to do that, they not only want to puff themselves up. It says, Paul says, they want, they're trying to make me feel bad. They're trying to make me feel lesser. Uh, They want to add to my affliction. They want to add, so I'm wearing these chains. Literally, I'm wearing chains and I'm under house of arrest. I've got these guards with me all the time, and they want, they, want the, they want me to know that they're pulling my church away, that they're drawing people to themselves, that they're growing big as I grow small. Um, uh, but uh, we'll see further on, their plan does not work. But there's a contrasting group. The contrasting group to Paul's rivals are those who are preaching out of goodwill. Now, the word goodwill here typically has a God word reference. So if you have a you know, goodwill is something where you are doing something in the way God would have you to do it. A good, it the Greek word has that God word reference. So they're preaching with a God word reference, with their mind and heart upon God and not upon their own selfish ambition or how they can become something greater. They have a God word reference. They preached Christ says Paul, out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So they see, uh, uh, they see that Paul is in prison because uh, the gospel, uh, he was preaching the gospel, it upset people, and so now he's being re- uh, restrained. He can preach to these guards, but he really can't be preaching anywhere else, and people are going, you know, I've got to step up. Paul's in in, in prison uh, for the gospel. So who's going to preach the gospel? 
I guess it's going to be me. And so the preachers, the people, the, the Christians of Rome were stepping up. I, I can't tell you, I've been around the church long enough uh, to see this happen over and over again, where uh, you have uh, a body of, of elders or uh, great leaders in the church, and, and everyone's happy, and they're doing a, a, a good job. And so no one, no one comes to join them. Uh, no young man steps up and says, hey, I want to I be like this too. I want to be an elder. I want to lead with you. But then something happens such that part of that leadership is taken away. And suddenly people just come out of the woodwork and step forward when there's this vacuum. Uh, uh, and, and people feel then feel the call. Uh, we had uh, a gentleman at our church that for uh, years we had tried to get on our session. And uh, he would always turn us down. There was always a, a reason, um, a business reason or a family reason or some sort of, uh, of reason uh, that he uh, was just not, you know, someday, yes, someday, I, you know, I, I definitely, I will someday uh, be uh, a ruling elder, but just not, not today. Uh, and then we, uh, we planted a church uh, in, on Church Hill in Richmond. And all of a sudden he's like, I'll go, I'll go with the church plant, and, and, and I'm ready to lead. Suddenly there was a need, and he was ready to step forward, and that's what's happening here. Paul not being able to preach has emboldened others. Contrary to what we would expect, others have been emboldened to preach. And so now, now comes the irony of the passage. Paul's rivals, that first group, thought that they could bring Paul's spirits down by preaching Christ and taking his position in the church, when actually they were serving to bring Christ's spirit, uh, Paul's spirit up. He was feeling better about his imprisonment when he looked out and saw how, how many people were preaching Christ. So the very thing that they intended to bring Paul down was bringing uh, him up. Now, this is not to say that our motives aren't important, right? Paul is saying, you know, I don't care if they're preaching out of rivalry and self-ambition uh, or out of goodwill. As long as Christ is preached, he's not saying that motives aren't important. He's saying motives aren't important to him in the message of Christ. He says, I'm not the one to judge their motives. God will ultimately judge their motives. I'm just judging what's going on, and I'm excited about what's going on, and I can rejoice about what's going on even when it's not what's best for me. So our main theme of the verse here is Paul's encouragement to the Philippians, because of what's going on in Rome, his encouragement to the Philippians to have a mindset that keeps Christ and his glory first in their hearts, even when everything from an earthly perspective seems against them. To keep Christ and his glory first in their hearts when everything from an earthly perspective seems against them. Paul has been in jail for two years physically chained to a guard, and uh, he, uh, he's losing his power and position among the Romans, the Roman church, as other preachers are stepping in to fill that void. Everything from an earthly perspective is against Paul. Uh, he is, he's, he's lost his, his job, his freedom, and there's a good chance he's going to lose his life. That's kind of, you've kind of covered the gambit here now in terms of earthly blessing. All, everything from an earthly perspective seems to be against Paul, but Paul can rejoice 
because he's got Christ and Christ's glory first in his mind. And so these things seem unimportant when looked at through the lens of Christ and what's going on for Christ. I hope you have noticed as we've been preaching through this uh, first um, section of uh, the first chapter of the book of Philippians, how Christ-centered the book is. It's Christ or the gospel, the good news about Christ, is mentioned constantly. And I just want to kind of run through it again. Verse 1, verse 1, 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, 1 again, the Philippians are saints in Christ Jesus. He sends his greetings of grace from the Lord Jesus, 1, 2. He thanks God for the Philippians' partnership with him in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, 1, 3. He is sure that God will complete the good work in the Philippians at the day of Jesus Christ, 1, 6. The Philippians are fellow partakers of Paul with Paul in the gospel, 1, 7. Paul prays that they will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, 1, 10. He explains... Uh, he, he explains this idea of pure and blamelessness by calling it the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, 111. His imprisonment has advanced the gospel, 112. His imprisonment is for Christ, 113. The Christians in Rome have become more bold to preach the gospel of Jesus, 114. Some preach out of envy and goodwill, preach the gospel out of envy and goodwill, 115. Paul is in prison for the defense of the gospel, 116. And there are different motives for preaching Christ, 117. Paul will rejoice as long as Christ is preached, 118. Christ, the gospel, Christ, the gospel, Christ, the gospel. Every verse, constant uh, drumbeat. So Paul is rejoicing uh, in prison when men try to steal his honor and influence because of Christ and the gospel, he can rejoice. So notice Paul is not a Stoic. You know, the Stoic philosophers said, you just need to disconnect yourself from this world and from the emotions of this world and the concerns of this world. And when you lose your emotional detachment from the world, then when things go bad, then you can still be happy if you have no emotional attachment to the world. And that's not what Paul's going on with Paul at all. He's very attached. He's very in. He's very concerned. But He's not looking primarily at his own glory, his own greatness, his own benefit. He's looking to that of Christ. Those of us who are parents or grandparents can kind of get a little bit of an analogy of this. You know, when we suffer and sacrifice and, and work towards the betterment of our children, maybe even just in soccer, and you're driving them miles and miles and miles to soccer games and spending hours of your life uh, on your kids' soccer games, and then they win the game, especially if, like, they kick the winning goal, you rejoice as if you had done it yourself, and your joy is wrapped up in their joy and not in your achievements or your joy. Uh, and so that's, that's what Paul is experiencing uh, on an even better scale. He is experiencing joy in prison with a death sentence hanging over his head uh, because Christ is being glorified. The one whom he puts his importance on is being glorified. So Paul's source of joy is a person, uh, a person who from all eternity was the Lord of glory, yet uh, 
was, uh, we'll see later in chapter two, was willing uh, to leave that glory behind and humble himself and take on the form of a servant. And then, uh, uh, and, and then in doing that, he would give all that he had for, for Paul and for us. And so Paul could rejoice. And so this is the mindset, the, this mindset that Paul has, that he's describing here is what, that he has in the prison in Rome. That's what he's describing that he wants the Philippians to have. And the Holy Spirit has added this letter to our Bible because the Holy Spirit wants us to have this same mentality as well. And you might say, yeah, well, that might work for a super apostle like Paul, but I'm just an ordinary Christian. But that's just the point. It wasn't the super apostles who were becoming bold in the streets of Rome. It was the ordinary Christians. It was the no-name Christians. We have no idea the names of these pastors of goodwill were. They were just your ordinary men living their lives for Christ. It was not super apostles that Paul was writing to in Philippi. Uh, and as a matter of fact, at the beginning of the letter, if you remember, he sends, he sends this letter to the saints that are in Philippi and their overseers and deacons. So as to point out, I'm not just sending this letter to the special people, as it were. I'm sending it to all of the church, and I want all of the church to be encouraged and have this mind uh, that is in Christ Jesus. Um, and then you might say, well, you know, but uh, things are so different. Things are so different in our time. You know, we, we live in a time that's so different uh, from the time of Paul uh, and, and the Philippians and the Romans. I would suggest things are not so different as you, you might think. Uh, many studies have been uh, done uh, on the parallels between the Roman Empire and American culture. And uh, uh, we are looking more and more like first century Rome and less and less like 19th century America all the time. Our time is not that different than the time uh, of Paul. But things uh, do change. Uh, and uh, so the more important point is not that our time is that different, but that Christ is no different. Christ has not changed uh, since the time of the Apostle Paul. Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, is still seated on the throne, and he is still interceding for us. All the promises are, of Scripture are still ours. Paul is sitting there in jail, and, uh, and we should be sitting here in uh, this building going, all things will work for my good. Paul wrote Romans before Philippians. He wrote to the Romans and said, I, I have this trust that God is working out everything for your good. And now Paul is, is the living proof of that. Even in jail, things are going well for Paul. Paul is sitting there saying, as we should say to ourselves, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. So no cultural change, no change in the government, no change in the laws about who can be married and who can't. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing that you will see on Fox News this week can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He who has begun a good work in you, said Paul, will bring it to completion. Paul believed in God's sovereignty and God's control. And so when uh, he gets arrested, when he's shipwrecked, when he's uh, bitten by poisonous snakes, when he's chained to guards for years, when Christians, Christians are being rivals to him, 
he goes, my God is in control, and I might not understand all of why I have to go through this, but I know that my God is in control. We can still see samples, examples of this today. We don't have to just look back to Paul and his imprisonment to know that these things are true. We had a man in our church, not much older than myself, uh, who got a diagnosis of cancer. And it was one of these cancers where they said, um, uh, we, cannot, we cannot cure this. The day of the diagnosis, is it wasn't, there was no, well, maybe, maybe not. It was, this is what you're going to die from. But it was also one of these slower-moving cancers. So this is what you're going to die from five to seven years from now. Not many of us get that in life. Not many of us get a, a date you will die of this five years from now. Now, in my family, the men tend to just be very healthy till they drop dead of a heart attack. And so what's it like? What's it like to have that? And so we all know, we all know that our death is coming. We all know that you, you're not going to avoid that, barring Christ coming back, which... He hasn't for 2,000 years. There's no reason to think it'll be tomorrow. Might be tomorrow. But most of us have a day coming when we're going to die. But we don't know what that day is. What's it like to know that you're going to die? How you're going to die? When you're going to die? Just like Paul sitting in that prison. Then what goes on in your mind? How does faith work then? And this man at our church I would have described him before that prognosis. I would have described him very much as an average Christian. He wasn't leading the Bible studies. He wasn't coming to all the Bible studies. He was just kind of your average Christian. He wasn't leading people to Christ. He wasn't, um, he was a good man. Uh, his, he and his wife had trouble now and then just kind of your average Christian. But after that diagnosis, over those five years before he died, what a Christian he became. He would send out these email updates uh, about his condition, and there'd be just like one sentence, you know, this is, this is where we are in the progress of, you know, my disease. And then there'd be a page of glorifying God He'd, be, he'd tell us about the passages that he was reading and how they'd affected his life. And, and it was transforming our, to our church to watch this man die. He was the Paul in prison, and we were those who were becoming bold to preach the gospel. Uh, and so I'm sure that you have seen people like this in your own life for whom the challenges of death uh, become the spur which drives us closer and closer to our Lord and Savior. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots into the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of the drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. That's what this man at our church was. He was the tree planted by water, and his season of drought 
and that the baking of his son had come, but he did not wither. He grew and bore fruit because his taproot was deep into Jesus. That, that, the, the taproot that Christians have into Jesus cannot be seen by the world, just like the roots of those trees into the stream cannot be seen from the ground. When the other trees are withering because of the drought, that tree is strong in the strength that the Lord supplies. It's so easy uh, for us to forget these things. Our mood is so quickly fluctuates with our circumstances. As long as I'm healthy, the kids are healthy, my job's going well, and there's money in the checking account, I'm doing pretty good. And I'm happy. Especially if, like, the kids voluntarily cleaned up their room. Now, that's a good day. But when things go wrong, whether it's a cold or cancer, COVID, uh, whether I'm underappreciated at work, someone less qualified than me has gotten that promotion, uh, they, they worm their way into the boss's uh, good graces, and now they're getting the promotion over me. Uh, someone else is being praised for the work that I did. Uh, when we see things in our culture that scare us, in our church that make us unhappy, and our families not going the way we want them to go, suddenly our joy is gone. We deal with anger and depression because we've forgotten that we have a taproot in Jesus Christ. Only looking to Christ can set you free from the tyranny of the fluctuating circumstances of your life. The circumstances of your life will fluctuate. They are going to go up and they are going to go down. And the only way to have joy in all of the circumstances of life is tapping deep into that root of Christ. Uh, Francis Schaeffer said that we live in a culture of personal peace and affluence. We often talk about uh, people having an entitlement mentality. Now, often when we talk about people having entitlement mentality, uh, we uh, point to those who are on uh, uh, government handouts as if you know, they deserved the mercy that they received and the entitlement uh, that they received. But let me tell you, America has an entitlement mentality. We all have an entitlement mentality. I deserve to be recognized at work. I deserve to have really good children. I work hard at raising my children, and they ought to just always be obedient. And when they go off to college, they should go to church every day because that's what I deserve. And then I deserve to go home and have my little brandy and watch television for four hours because I worked hard today. We all have an entitlement mentality, and sometimes we keep Christ at arm's length because we're afraid of what he might ask us to do. I might have to give up some of my video games or my uh, TV watching in order to serve to be bold to preach the gospel. Uh, the question then that Paul lays before us is, are you making decisions for your own glory and to protect your standard of living? Are you making decisions for Christ? Are, uh, what, and what is your joy tied to? The unchanging Christ or your fluctuating circumstances? Are you ready for the cancer diagnosis? Are you ready for the death of your spouse, your child, your own mortality? If you're not uh, in it now, the drought of this world is coming. Are you a tree that is planted by the river? Do you have your taproots deep into Jesus Christ? I, I often find it amazing when people are surprised by death. 
their spouse dies or their child dies or even their parents die. We all expect our parents to die before us, right? And yet a parent dies and the child is just completely adult child. I mean, the 60-year-old the, the, the adult child completely devastated by the fact that their 80-year-old parent just died. And you're like, you did know this was coming, right? You know, it's appointed for man wants to die and then the judgment. As far as I can tell statistically, it's, it, it's, uh, it's one per person. Death is one per person. There are a few outliers. There's Elijah and Enoch and, and then uh, Lazarus. But those are outliers. Statistically, it's one per person. It's coming. We should not be surprised. Uh, this life is short. I had a, another friend who was young, and he, he, had a, uh, he was in his early 20s, and he had a, a, a friend from college, also in his early 20s, who had died, and he was so upset that he had died so young. And I said, when you're 80 and your friends will die, you'll think they're dying so young. Life is short. Where is your taproot? Are you ready when the drought comes? Maybe it's not the drought that bothers you. Uh, maybe you're not in the trials of life. Maybe you need to be set free from the feverish quest to be the best. You're not really suffering right now, but you're striving to be the best, to have it all. Uh, I was talking with some teachers of, uh, recently about the change that's taken place in uh, education, where education used to be where you went in order uh, because you had need to be formed. You were lacking, and you went to school to be transformed, to be changed, to grow. And now school is a place where you go to perform. You go and present yourself as having arrived and being someone so that you will get the good grades and can go on to the next school so that you can present yourself there and perform so that you have arrived so that you can go on to get that great job and present to them how much you have arrived and performed. It's about performance. And so this is why parents get upset when teachers say something negative about their children, instead of going, oh, thank you for correcting Johnny and what he did this week. It's how dare you correct my son? Because he's there to perform, not to learn or to grow. Do not correct my daughter, my son. But we're all, we can all live in that. Are you in constant fear of what people will think of you so that you hide or even lie to look good in the eyes of others? Uh, that's what Paul's rivals were doing. They wanted to look good in the eyes of the church, and they were willing to put Paul uh, down in order to do it. Whereas Paul goes, I don't care what anybody thinks about me as long as Christ is glorified. Is that our attitude? And you have to be uh, intentional to do this. If you just wander through life, you're going to be surprised by death. If you just wander through life, you are going to be worried and fearful you're going to have your mood fluctuated by the tyranny of the circumstances of this world. It's only by intentionally looking to Christ, by being here on Sunday, by reading your word, by memorizing those promises that God has given to you so that when those times come, there is something for you to hold on to. The other cry for us here, other application for us here is to be charitable to those who differ from us in the church. Paul didn't feel a need to go out and say, hey, everybody, you got to get rid of these teachers that are, that are um, preaching from bad motives. 
He was pleased that the church was advancing. So imagine back to our analogy. Imagine that All Saints is stealing some sheep. Could you, could you rejoice? Could you say, as long as Christ is being preached, I don't care if Evergreen goes away. I mean, many of you have been here since the beginning. Since the day it was planted, many of you have been here, and you've dumped your money, and you've dumped your time, you've dumped your lives into this church. I was at All Saints uh, uh, at the beginning, and I have dumped my money and my time and my life into that church. Am I ready to say, as long as Christ's glorified, I don't care if it goes away? That's what Paul is willing to do. I don't care if I lose all influence in Rome. I don't care if they forget my name, as long as Christ is preached. Are we prepared? Do we think that way about our fellow believers? When we see other churches growing, when we're not, when we see uh, uh, better preachers than the one that we have, are we good? I'm glad Christ is being preached. Do we have that mind in us that was in Paul, that mind that was in Christ Jesus himself? So only one person, I'll I'll close with a a quote here from Dennis Johnson. I, I think he really grasps it. Only one person can set your heart free from the heavy burden of your own reputation, free to sing in a prison cell, to rejoice in the success of your rivals, and to put your life on the line for a cause bigger than yourself. Your heart will be restless until you rest in Christ, the Lord of lords who became a servant to all, who laid down his life to ransom many, who has taken his life up again, who calls you to surrender his grace and to find in him joy for which your heart was made, a joy that springs from fountains deeper than the fluctuating circumstances of our lives, from the infinite joy of God the Father, in God the Son, through God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you. We thank you that Christ uh, won through losing. We thank you that he destroyed death by dying. Father, we we have that mentality in us. May we follow Paul uh, as he sits in his prison cell rejoicing that Christ is glorified. Father, may we have that mind in us as well. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this quote in the bulletin. Uh, The Lord's Supper is not being served today. Hunger and thirst and be satisfied in Christ as he is presented in the word. That's the message of the passage today. Put your taproot into Jesus and not into the circumstances of this world. Uh, Do we stand for the confession? Let's stand. Let's stand for the confession of faith using the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.